All right. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys again. Uh, this morning we are in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Uh, we began um, in this, uh, not last week, but the week before that, Matthew chapter 24, we're looking at the parable of the fig tree. And I've broken this up into two parts just so that we have a, a better understanding of what is actually taking place because there's so much that is happening in Matthew 24. Um, and we could spend three, four weeks or more on this, but um, we're going to spend these, these two weeks and then we'll move to the parables that come after that. But if we want to understand the parable of the fig tree, if we want to understand the parables that come after that, we do need to have a grasp of Matthew chapter 24. And, and in that, the first sermon in this series, we looked at those things that don't necessarily signal the imminent return of Christ so that we are not um, taken and, and we, we fall prey to false teachers and false prophets and things like that that are coming up or to, to speculative ministries and things like that when it comes to the end times. And, and today, though, we're going to move and we're going to look at what are those things that signal that the end is near. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we will dive into today's message. Hopefully you have found your place there in Matthew chapter 24. We'll be referring to this text quite a bit, so I encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open. But join me in, in prayer. God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity uh, once again to, to gather together as your church, to be able to open your scriptures, to be able to look at, at what you uh, have to say to us, um, particularly about how we are to live life. And, and here, even you know, as, as we think about when, when will the world end and what will all those things look like, and, and really a pointer to the hope that we have in Christ. Um, and so we thank you for that, God, that you don't leave us without instruction. You don't leave us without hope. And today, as we walk through this particular passage, may you help us to, to feel a sense of, of hope, um, a hope of, of Jesus' return and that, that you are present in this world. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when will the world end? That, that is a question that we're all asking in, in one form or another. Both Christians and non-Christians, they look out at the world and they say, look, something is really wrong with the world in which we live. We all believe that, that something needs to change. Some believe that that needs to change in, in the form of, of power structures. Others believe that needs to change in the form of, of how we care for the environment. And still others believe that the very nature of the world and those who live in it, all of those things need to change. And wanting change is, is, is not a, a bad thing. We all feel the effects of the world pressing in on us each and every single day. We all long for something different, both Christians and and non-Christians long for something different. We, whether we want to admit it or not, deep down, we know that the world in which we live, the world is, is really messed up. And while some of us can't put our finger on the cause of, of why the world is, is so messed up, other of us can and we look to God's Word and we see that, that it is sin, it is rebellion that, that has caused the world to be in the state that it is in. But everybody seems to be looking for the end, the end of the world as we know it. And if you remember, we began answering this question in the last message, when is the world going to end? And this week we're going to continue in that second part of the series. And we're going to look at those activities that signal that the end is near. And, and as you'll see, we can predict, we cannot predict, excuse me, we cannot predict the exact day and time. 
but there are signals, there are pointers to when the end is growing near. And that's what the parable of the fig tree tells us. So let me just remind you of the parable of the fig tree in in verse 32 of Matthew chapter 24. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so Jesus compares his coming. Jesus compares the the bringing of his, his future kingdom. And he says, the fig tree can teach us the lesson as to when this time is going to to come. We, we learn that the fig tree clues you into when the seasons are changing, particularly when summer is coming. Its leaves begin to kind of bud. When its branches become tender, the, the leaves start to, to show. We know the summer is, is near. And likewise, we're told in verse 32, 33, when you see all of these things, you know that Jesus is at the very gates. He is about to come back. And last week, last time we looked at, well, what do all these things represent? And, and we looked at those things that all these things do not represent. But this week we're going to look at what do all these things from this particular parable, what are those things? What does that represent? What are the signs and pointers of Jesus' imminent return? And we see that the end is near when the gospel has gone to the nations. In verse 14, here's what Jesus says. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so Jesus tells us that the end is not going to come until the gospel has been proclaimed to the nations as a, as a testimony, as a witness to the good news of what he has done for us. And so we need to ask the question, well, well, what has Jesus done for us? Why is what Jesus has done for us gospel? Why is it good news? Why is it a good announcement for us? Well, if we look all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning we learned that God created man in his image. And as those created in his, his image, he intended for us to reflect his glory to all of creation. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, the representatives of the human race, they they rebelled against God instead of reflecting his image. And as a result, they plunged the world, including you and I, into sin, into rebellion against God. And we all feel the effects of this. And instead of seeking to bring God glory, instead of reflecting his image to the world in a way that, that brings him glory, when we talk about his image, his character, Instead of extending his rule throughout all of the world as God has declared for us to do, what do we do? We seek to glorify ourselves. We seek to make our own kingdoms. We rebel against God. And this is why our answer to what needs to change in the world differs from people to people, right? Many of us live at odds with God because we are living as the big K king instead of the little K king. And the result of living at odds with God is facing his judgment, is facing his wrath. We see a picture of this as Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden and their their relationship with God is severed. And that is the bad news. 
But, but, but the good news is that Jesus has come to rescue us by giving his life on our behalf. He took the punishment that we deserve in order to redeem us, to reconcile mankind with, with God as well as all of creation. And we see a, a picture of this even as Adam and Eve are ushered out of the garden. God kills an animal and, and their skins are placed over them as a covering so that he can now exist in community with them. And Jesus does the same for us. Jesus takes our punishment on himself and when we believe in Jesus as our Lord and as our, as our Savior, we are covered by his blood and his death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. His resurrection will become our resurrection. Even now we experience a resurrected and renewed life, but in the future we will experience that even to a greater extent. You see, Jesus' actions point to a redeemed world, a world where sickness and death and, and heartache and failure and, and injustice and power struggles and, and hurt and harm are, are all put to an end. They all come to an end. A world that is perfect in all respects will happen in the future when Jesus returns. And the, way, the only way that our relationship with the Father is reconciled, the only way that we can experience that reconciliation, the only way that we can experience the world to come and to have hope now even in this world is through a relationship with Jesus. It is, it is believing that, that He has come and that He has taken the punishment that we deserve. It is by believing that His resurrection from the dead is the first fruits of our future resurrection from the dead and entrance into His kingdom to come. You see, if Jesus didn't come, if Jesus did not sacrifice himself on our behalf, we would have no hope because there is no way for us to escape the punishment of God. We can't save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do. There's not enough riches that we can amass. There's nothing that we can do at all to save ourselves. We can't enlighten ourselves enough. We can't be spiritual enough in order to experience salvation. It's only through Jesus that we can be redeemed from the curse of sin and experience salvation in the world to come. It's only through Jesus that we can accomplish our God-given purpose to glorify God. It's only through Jesus that we can experience hope of a renewed world. A renewed world in which we all long to experience. What we see here is then that our life is to be lived for the glory of God. And one way that we can bring glory to God is through mission. Having been rescued by Jesus, we are to go out and seek to rescue others. We are to, to seek and save the lost. And once the gospel of the kingdom has gone out to the nations, we are told here in verse 14, the end will come. And Jesus' declaration that, that the end will not come until the gospel has gone to the nations should clue us into the fact that Jesus cares about the gospel going to the nations. Jesus cares about that. And we should care about that as well. We should be about spreading the gospel. We should center on the gospel and we should live life on mission. And how should we do that? How does that work out in the life of the church? Well, well gospel-centered missional churches, they do, they do several things. First, they encourage missions work. And churches do this in all sorts of ways, right? We can highlight missionaries. We can highlight church planners. We can, we can pray for them. We can, you know, host different 
classes and courses on what it looks like to be a missionary. We can support local and, and international missions. We can do different projects like we're doing now with Operation Christmas Child where we are you know, collecting uh, stuff for these boxes and we're going to send that out as presents and gifts to other people in other parts of the world and they're going to have the opportunity to take those gifts and give them to those children and families and then present the gospel to them. We can do those things. We can also read Scripture at the end of service like we have been, been doing. We've been reading Matthew chapter 28 to the Great Commission. We're reading Acts 1-8 as well. And, and these Scripture readings at the end of the service before we leave here have been strategically chosen so that we are pointed towards mission, so that we see that God cares about mission and we should care about mission. As we leave here, out of this gathered assembly as a church, we should be about living life on mission. And along with encouraging missions, gospel-centered missional churches, they support missionaries. And we can support missionaries in a number of different ways, right? We can pray for them. We can, we can give to missions. I read a statistic recently that said that if churchgoers would increase their tithing to 10%, apparently the average churchgoer gives 2.5% of their income or even less. But if churchgoers would increase their tithing to 10%, it has been estimated that we would have an additional $165 billion to do the work of ministry. And it has been estimated that $1 billion could fully fund all overseas missions work. And churches that are all about the gospel, who, who want to see people reached and saved, pray for missionaries, and they also support them financially. And along with encouraging missionaries and, and supporting missionaries, gospel-centered missional churches also call their members to personally participate in the mission. You can give to full-time, or there are different ways that you can do that, right? You can be a full-time missionary who gives your life to go and live overseas and learn another culture, another language, and, and bring the gospel to those people. You can participate in short-term mission trips where we may gather together as a church and go to a, to a place to, to do the work of ministry in a short period of time. You could do that. And oftentimes these are the actions that get associated with missions work. And while many of us will give to, many of us will, will pray for missionaries from time to time, we might even go on short-term mission trips from time to time. God has not called every one of us to be long-term missionaries in a, another country. And that's not, that's not a bad thing, right? It's just that that's not the call that God has placed on your life. And so I'm not trying to argue that, that every one of us should sell our homes and sell our businesses and quit our jobs and begin learning another language and move to another country to do missions where God calls certain people to do that. He doesn't call everybody to do that. See, all of these activities, they are good, they are, they are right, but, but these are not the only way in which we might participate in missions work, bring the good news of Jesus to the nations, right? You can participate in Jesus' mission right here in Red Oak by living life on mission for Christ. And by living life on, on mission, what I mean by that is that we consider ourselves as missionaries seeking to make disciples as we go about our day right here in the city in which we live. And how can we be a gospel-centered church that's living on mission? Well, in order to live on mission, we have to move from seeing ourselves as passive consumers of the Bible to active agents whose mission it is to engage others with the good news of the gospel. We have to see 
It is our personal responsibility to reach out to the lost and call them to faith in Christ. Not just pastors or Bible study leaders or Sunday school teachers or those we might consider the super spiritual, right? It is everybody's responsibility to do that. And I'm not just talking about formal programs that the church puts on, though, though we should definitely be involved in those, right? When we have an event at the church, we should all be involved in those events, right? If you're physically able and capable and you're in town, you should come when we have events at the church, right? We just had a trunk or treat and, and man, that was a big win, right? We had probably six, seven hundred people come and get candy from us and hot dogs and cotton candy and all of those things, right? We had all those people here on the campus at our church and when we host those events, when we put resources into those events, we should make sure that we are here to engage with those people who are coming if we're physically able to do that. But I have more in mind than us just signing up for formal events that the church has put on. I have in mind you reaching out to your sphere of influence. I have in mind you living like a missionary in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in, in, your, in your place of recreation. And you see, if we're going to be a transformative light to the community, our model of how people come into the church has to change, right? We can't just expect to open the doors and have people flood in. We live in a post-Christendom world. We have to be the ones who do the going. We have to be the ones who reach out and one of the most effective ways that we can do that is through relationships with non-believers. You see, non-believers not only need to be engaged with the gospel, but they also need to be able to see the gospel lived out in our lives. They need to, to see what it looks like if they were to become a Christian. And you are the one that God has determined to show them what it looks like to follow Christ as you engage them and build a relationship with them. You see, as Christians, we need to be engaged with and, and like the world and like those around us, but we also need to be unlike them as well. We engage through the activities that we do on a regular basis. We're like them because we participate in some of these activities, right? Like you play soccer, I play soccer. You work here, I work here. You like uh, doing this hobby, I like doing this hobby. Right? That's what I mean by being like the world. But we also, as we seek to engage them, as we participate in these hobbies, as we participate in this work with them, we are unlike them. Our character, our actions, what we value, how we do business, how we conduct ourselves, all of those things are different from how the world does that. And people need to see that as well as people need the opportunity to engage with us, to ask us questions about life. They need the opportunity to ask us, well, why are we living different than them? Being in relationship with those around us gives us the opportunity also to provide them with counsel that is different from the counsel that they are getting from the world, an opportunity to challenge them, to encourage them, to pray for them. And many of, for many of you, that, that may not be all of that difficult, right? You have relationships that span 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You know people who are non-believers. And we need to use those relationships we need to invite those people over to our house for dinner. We need to hang out with them on the weekends. We need to ask them how they're doing spiritually. If they have any questions about God or the church or God's Word, we need to invite them to study the Bible with us. We invite them to read a book with us. And we've provided you with some resources lately. Gentle and Lowly is a, is a good resource. We have tons and tons of copies of that. They're out there in the back. They're free to you can get that and give that to a neighbor or a co-worker and just ask them to, to read through that with you. 
meet together and discuss some of the stuff that is in the book. That's a good way to open up conversation about Jesus and, and God's Word. We can offer to keep their kids for them as a way to serve them. I mean, there are many different ways that we can engage people. We don't just invite them to church and they turn us down and we leave it at that. No, we, we, we continue to build a relationship with them. You see, if we're going to see the church revitalized, if we're going to see the community and the world changed, we not only need to encourage missions work, support missions work by praying and giving, but we also need to live life on mission. And we should be encouraged towards gospel-centered missional living because of Jesus' declaration in, in verse 14. Despite persecution, despite the world hating us, despite many faults, prophets coming, your own friends and family betraying you to evil regimes, Jesus tells us here that many people, as the gospel goes out to the nation, many people are going to embrace the gospel. They're going to believe the gospel and they're going to turn and follow Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. We should be encouraged by that. We should do all of these things because mission work, the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations is commanded by God and it's directly tied to Jesus's second coming. And Jesus tells us that the end is here when the gospel has gone out to the nations. And second, we learn that the end is here when the abomination of desolation appears. And look at what Jesus says starting in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then he continues and he says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. The one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. And Jesus starts this section by revealing that an abomination of desolation is going to appear. And what, what Jesus reveals is that this abomination, either an event or, or, an, or an object, uh, it, it will defile the holy place and cause it to be abandoned and left desolate. This has happened in the past, right? Jesus wants us to be connected back to an event that happens in the past. He, he speaks of the prophet Daniel here in verse 15. He also has this kind of parenthetical, let the reader understand section. He wants us to look back to the history of the Old Testament. He wants us to see what has happened. And Daniel prophesied that the temple would be desecrated, and indeed that did happen. History records that Antiochus IV, the Syrian king, slaughtered a pig on the altar of burnt offering and erected an idol to Zeus in the temple in 167 B.C. And Jesus uses that event, an event that, that would be cemented in the disciples' mind, in the mind of those in all of, of history. Jesus uses this event to point to a future event that would happen. And again, this future event does happen. Just after maybe 40 years later or less, the temple is destroyed there in AD 70. Rome has is, is captured Jerusalem and the, the temple is laid desolate as the Roman army comes in. You remember the disciples asked Jesus as he predicted that the temple would be destroyed. He, they, they asked him in the beginning of chapter 24, when are all these things going to take place? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And Jesus is pointing to them to this time when this is going to take place. But I think Jesus has also a, a future event yet still in mind, a future time when the abomination of desolation is going to appear and he's going to set himself up against Christ. And, and I don't believe that, that 
the image here necessarily pictures us uh, another future temple that, that is being rebuilt so that it can be desecrated again. Right, when you think about the temple, what does the temple represent? The temple represents all of religious life. It represents the place where God is at, where he comes to meet with his people. It represents worship. And for someone to lay it desolate means that the worship of the Lord is hindered. It's sought to be eradicated. And it very well could be another powerful regime or regimes that, that come in the future to seek to eradicate the church and set themselves up against God and set themselves up against churches, those who are the ones to be worshipped. And Paul predicts a time such as this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he describes the man of, of lawlessness. It's a little bit small, but hopefully you can, you can see that up there on the screen. Starting in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he's clearing up some misunderstanding there with the Thessalonians. They think that the day of the Lord has already come. And he's saying, no, this has not come yet. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, as he continues. For that day will not come. And he tells us, when is this day going to come? For that day will not come unless the rebellion has come first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. In the future, there is one who is coming, one who is going to oppose worship of God, who is going to oppose the religious life of, of those who, who follow Christ and stand against him and, and even stand against all other objects of worship, every so-called God in this world, and try to set themselves up as the one in which they are to, the people are to worship. And as you keep reading through 2 Thessalonians 2, you learn that this is Satan's attempt to seek to dethrone God as he attacks the church. And seeks to lay it desolate. The appearance of the abomination of desolation then ends up ushering in this great tribulation. Which is another pointer to the imminent return of Christ. The end is here when the tribulation begins. And so if we pick up there in, in verse 15 again. Just to get the context down to verse 22. It says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel... Standing in the holy place, linking us back again, linking us to this future event. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so when you see this person coming into to Rome, I believe he's telling them, to, to overtake the temple, don't hang around. Get out of there. Flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetops, don't go in and take anything that is in your house. Go now. The time has come. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter on her Sabbath, that it may not be hindered. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And in those days had not been, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
And once the abomination of desolation appears, sets himself up to be worshipped as God, the great tribulation occurs. And much like when the Roman army came and destroyed the temple and in AD 70, there was a difficult time for Jews. There, there, were, there will be another difficult time in the future. You see, Jesus is using these events that took place in the past as the events that will take place in the future from him. And then even to point to a more future event yet to come. And he's using these images and these ideas to help us to see what that might look like. What we need to look out for. According to Josephus, a, a historian, he said the Romans brutally in brutality included enslaving nearly 100,000 Jews and slaughtering or starving another 1.1 million. This was truly Israel's darkest hour, a time of tribulation unsurpassed in Israel's, Israel's history. When the Roman army came in, this is what took place. And that is a picture in history. Maybe even a picture of the Jewish slaughter underneath the Nazi regime is another picture in history, a foreshadowing of this great tribulation that will come upon the church. The tribulation represents a time of great suffering, and that, that's what that word tribulation means. There is, there's always been, and there always will be, tribulation in this world for Christians. There will be times of suffering and difficulty simply because we follow Christ. But it seems that as the end grows near, this, this time of tribulation may intensify. It may grow more difficult to be a Christian in this world, a follower of Christ in this world. And during the great tribulation, there will be persecution of those who are Christians. And it appears that the difficulty of those days will also spill out into the entire world. In verse 22, we learn that if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. And this time of suffering is, is so intense. This time of suffering affects so many different people that it will have to be cut short. And, and it will be cut short for the sake of, he says here, for the sake of the elect. God's chosen people, those who are followers of Christ. For the sake of the elect, the tribulation will be cut short. And during the tribulation, there will be a time of great suffering, but also the tribulation represents a time of great deception. Look at what the text says in 23. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform many great signs. And wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness. Well, don't go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Whether the, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered. And so... From this chapter, even beginning in verse 5, we learn that many false prophets, many false messiahs will come on the scene. And those claims won't stop during the tribulation. If anything, those claims will intensify, right? Satan is going to use this time of tribulation to, and try to capitalize upon deception of believers. To say Christ is, is come, Christ is out in the wilderness, Christ is in the inner rooms. Go and seek and find him there. Many false messiahs will arise during that time. Who will try to deceive even God's elect, God's people. And so not only will there be a time of great suffering, but there will be a time of, of great deception that takes place near the end. 
Now, I know that, that it's popular to believe that Christians will not have to endure through the tribulation. That a secret rapture is going to occur, that is going to remove Christians from the world. But, but I, don't, I don't believe when I read these verses, even when I read through Revelation, it doesn't seem to, to teach that. Jesus is telling his current disciples, Jesus is telling his future disciples what they can expect when the end is near. There's no mention of Christians secretly escaping this. Instead, there seems to be an even greater mention of Jesus' disciples, his elect, staying and experiencing parts of this suffering. Now, I'll bring this up not, not to stir the pot, because I know many people may believe that, but, but I bring this up so that... We are not deceived so that we are prepared if we happen to be here when the tribulation begins. The last thing you need to think is that, hey, I won't be here when, when this great suffering, this intensive time comes on the world. I, I'm going to be gone. I'm not going to be here any longer. And then you are here. That might reduce your hope in Christ. That might not that might that might keep you from looking to Christ and, and hoping in this and to, to standing firm and to overcoming as we are called to do as believers. It might shake our confidence. But I believe if we recognize that, that though that will be a difficult time, that we have hope in Christ, that Christ will return. Christ will cut these days short here for the sake of those who are here, for the sake of the elect, that we can stand firm. We can know that Christ will come back in all of his power and all of his glory, and he will set things right. That we will be, if we stand firm, overcomers. And that is what our hope needs to be in. That's what we need to be prepared for. For a time of suffering. A time of suffering that we might even experience now, but a greater time of suffering in the future as Jesus' return grows near. We won't know the, the hour or the time of that. Jesus tells us that. But we will know that Jesus is about to come and that his kingdom is about to come when we see the disturbance of the cosmos and the signs of the Son of Man. 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, we are told in verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his, out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one heaven, end of heaven to the other. You see, Jesus' return will not be hidden. Jesus' return will be unmistakable. We are told here that the sun and the moon and the stars will be darkened, the heavens will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And this could literally mean that, that the sun and the moon and the stars are, are darkened, or it could mean that the great powers of that day are, are toppled. As you read about this prediction in Isaiah chapter 13 and in Daniel 7 and Revelation of the beast being destroyed. Either way, it is clear that, that, that when these things take place, we will know them. 
And something is about to happen. Jesus is about to return, and indeed he will return. The sign of the Son of Man possibly pictured in in Daniel chapter 7 of of him coming back on the clouds of heaven with, with power and great glory will take place at that time. Either way, Jesus' coming will be unmistakable. You will not think that he just happened in in secret out in the desert or in the inner rooms. Jesus' coming will be unmistakable. And not only will his coming be unmistakable, but it will be universal. More than just a select few will know that Jesus has come. Everyone everywhere will see Jesus' coming. They will be aware that, that He is there. This is an event that no one anywhere in the world, no one will miss. And not only will it be something that we will see, but, but all peoples will answer when Jesus returns. It will affect everyone. Not just a select few, but Jesus' second coming will affect everyone everywhere. We, told, we are told that His elect are gathered in the nation's will mourn and the nations will mourn because judgment time has come. We will all face judgment one day. Notice that that it says that that all the tribes, which means everyone everywhere, all people will answer to Jesus. And we will do so because Jesus alone is God. There is no other. It's not good enough to believe in your own God and and faithfully practice your own religion, nor is it enough to to loosely be connected to God through sporadic church attendance or on select holidays or even through family members. You say, well, my grandma was a believer. That's not good enough. If we want to be counted among the elect, if we want Jesus' angels to gather us from the four corners of the world, we must believe in Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. See, salvation is personal. We must believe in Him ourselves. Not just our family members. Not just the church we attend. We must believe in Him personally. We must submit ourselves to Him realizing there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to place ourselves in His kingdom. If we don't don't submit ourselves to Him, we will be among those who are mourning on the last day. And that includes all those people who who we might consider and look at and say, man, they're they're good people. All those people who are faithful to another religion. The the only way to be counted among Jesus' elect is to believe that Jesus is your Lord and Jesus is your Savior. To confess your sins and to submit to Him and Him alone. To follow Him and Him alone. We all want the world to change. We're all wondering when the world is is going to end as we know it. And God's Word tells us when the end will come, Jesus will return. That may not be the answer that that some folks are looking for in this world, but that is the answer that, that the Bible gives. And I believe there's good reason for us to believe what the Scriptures teach us. You see, if we want to experience change, if we want to live in a perfect world, if we want to to live in a world that has been redeemed and and transformed from the world in which we live now, we must look to God's Word. We must look to Jesus. We must believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Jesus is the only one who gives us hope of a transformed world. He is the only one who does that. And today you have the opportunity to turn to Jesus, to confess Him as your Lord and as your Savior, to believe in Him. Jesus is going to return one day. We don't know. We have no idea what day He is coming. 
what hour he is coming, what year he is coming. We, we do not know, but Jesus will return one day. And when he returns, Jesus will judge the nations. And today you have an opportunity to be on the right side of redemptive history. You can turn to Jesus today. You can believe he is the ruler and sustainer of the universe who will return with power and might to judge all of those on this earth and all of those who have passed before. You can experience salvation. The question is, where are you at this morning? Are you ready for Jesus's return? Are you going to be counted among the elect, his, his followers, when he does return? If you have turned to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, then you can have confidence. You can have confidence that you will be there with him in his kingdom. But if you haven't turned to him, then now is an opportunity for you to do that. For you to believe in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. And if you have turned to him, well, now is an opportunity for you to proclaim that, to proclaim that to the world. And we're going to do that this morning as we take the Lord's Supper. And so if you have your prepackaged elements here, I invite you to take those. And the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to remember, to reflect on, to even proclaim to proclaim to one another, to proclaim to the world the hope that we have in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. And when we think of persevering in this world, well, well, we need hope. We need to know that this world is not all there is, that there is something greater than, than this world, that there, is, that there is something that is coming in the future, a time of redemption, a time of reconciliation, a time of renewal. And that's what the supper points to. As Jesus gathers together with his disciples there, he says that, that he will not drink of the cup again and celebrate until he is gathered together with his church in the future feast when the kingdom has come. See, it points to a hope of his future return. And so let's remember that hope, the hope that we have now. Let's take this bread, and the bread as we see here, It represents Jesus' body. His body that has been broken for us. His body suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. His body died the death that we deserve to die. But His body resurrected as well to point us to a future hope that we have. And so let's remember that as we partake of this bread now. That same night as Jesus was gathered together with his disciples as he was instituting the the Lord's Supper as we know it. He also took the cup, the cup, the wine. It represents the blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf. And it is through his blood that, that the new covenant is enacted. The new covenant comes through his blood. It's a, a new way for us to interact with the Lord. To have a personal relationship with him, we no longer have to go through the temple and the sacrificial systems. We can have access to the very throne room of God because we have been covered, we have been made holy, we have been made righteous through Christ's blood that was shed for us. Just as the mercy seat was covered in the Holy of Holies once a year during the Day of Atonement with the spilt blood of the animals, 
You think of this blood that this represents as covering us so that we might be seen as holy by the Father and righteous, so that we might be able to enter into His presence even now and enter into His future presence at the return of His kingdom. That's what we are proclaiming, that it is only through Jesus and Jesus alone can we have access to the kingdom to come. And so let's proclaim that now to the world and remember that ourselves. Would you bow with me in prayer? And after I pray, the worship team will come up. They're going to lead us in a time of response. And if you would like to respond during this time, if you'd like to profess faith in Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, publicly now is an opportunity for you to do that. If you just feel today that you need to come and, and you need to, to submit yourself before the Lord, that you, need, you have some sin in your life that you need to repent of, that, that you just want to petition God, on your behalf or maybe someone else's behalf, we have the altar open here. That you can come and, and pray. We might gather around and, and pray with you and for you as well. And so let's respond in the way that, that God is calling you to respond. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll have that time of response. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity for us to gather together as your church, Lord. We thank you that you don't leave us without hope, that you don't leave us without a pointer to when the, when the end is coming, that you don't leave us without a, an understanding that, that Christ will come back and that he will, that he will set things right. Lord, help us to hope in that, even as we experience tribulation in this world now and and possibly a, a great intense time of tribulation in the future. Lord, help us to continue to hope and stand firm and to overcome so that we too, so that we too will be counted among the elect to enter into the kingdom to come. And Lord, if there's someone here today watching or, or in this room today who, who doesn't know you, who's maybe been trusting in their own selves, who've, who've been loosely connected with you, God, but has not submitted themselves to you, is not really following Christ as their Lord and as their Savior, God, I pray that you would do a work in their heart now, that you would call them to yourself, that you would, you would stir something in them so that they might come to you today, so that they might become true believers in Christ today, Lord. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.